You're listening to a sermon on the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Stick around after the message for more information about Mission Ridge. Thanks for tuning in. This is the final week on our this is the story we tell series. Next week, we're going to talk about discipleship. And so if, if, the, if the last five weeks, including this week, has been about the story that we tell, discipleship is how we help others tell that story. And in this, so in this five-week series that we've been going through, we've wrestled with this question, how do we tell an accurate story of who our God is? This is an important time for our church. We've been holding services for just over a year. And this is the time that we establish culture. When, when you plant a church, this is, this is that time when the people that God brings in and, and the way people buy into the values and the vision, the mission of, the, of a church, this is the time that, that we establish culture. In a lot of ways, this is like the first five minutes of a football game. Now, I know not all of you know what football is, um, but for those of you who do, Hope you'll uh, stay with me a little bit. Did you see the Seahawks game the other night? So the Seahawks, they're a couple minutes into the game. They're second and 18 on the 17-yard line. Russell Wilson passes to the left. The uh, receiver gains 15 yards. That's fantastic. And then he fumbles the ball. Great defensive play, unfortunately, for the other team. And uh, I thought, ugh, like we just lost the game. Like that's, that's what I felt like had just happened because Seattle had lost the last three times against this Rams team. This Rams team's been playing really, really well, except for the week before. But not a great start for the Seattle Seahawks. Mission Ridge didn't have a great start either. When we were trying to establish culture, we fumbled on our side of the field within the first five minutes of the game. And we have spent the better half of this first year recovering from our own staff not living out our core values well. And honestly, going through this series has been painful for us on staff. It's been a painful reminder what do we do with failure, both as individuals and as a church? How do we handle it when we don't live authenticity well, when we fail to show generosity, when we're not unified in our diversity, when we falter at being the kind of family that God calls us to? As we finish up this series, we are looking at our core value of roughly right. God uses imperfect people with imperfect methods and imperfect theology. While this is not an excuse for compromise, we also embrace the fact that we will make mistakes and get things wrong. We value doing the best we can, but 
We won't allow imperfections to prevent us from moving forward with God's mission. I, I hate to fail. I hate to stumble. But especially when it comes to God's kingdom. I hate to fail when it comes to God's kingdom. But we want to consider what God has to say to us as a church in light of our first year. And so we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 11 today. And it reads this way in verses 1 through 6. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not, be, so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken... He was commended as having pleased God. Man, I love that to be said of me. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And if you are just starting out your relationship with God and you're really wondering What does God value? Like, how do you start this relationship with him? It starts here. You have to believe that he exists, that everything that he says about himself is true. And secondly, that he rewards those who seek him. Not only do you need him, but as you seek him, he will reward you. And then Hebrews 11, 7 through 31, there's 13 faith statements that I want to go over. This is not all of this section, but this is the part that I wanted to focus on. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she was considered him faithful, who had promised. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God 
than to enjoy the fleeing pleasures of sin. By faith, Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And so we have this list of people who live by faith and how God responded to each and every situation. Does anybody else feel a little intimidated by this list? Anybody out there? I mean, you read this list and you're like, how in the world could I ever get to there? The author concludes this section, 1132, and he says this, What more shall I say? For time will fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. This is an interesting list of people to end with. And I want to highlight a couple things. First of all, for some reason, for some reason, Gideon and Barak, they're out of order. And for some reason, David and Samuel, they are out of order. Interesting question, why? Uh, someone said, well, he's just rattling off a bunch of names. I guess if we're having a conversation, you just rattle off some names, that makes sense. But like, the author of Hebrews seems to know their scriptures pretty well. So something else is going on there. But also, out of everybody that the Hebrews writer mentions, these are the folks that have the most glaring problems. I don't know if you know about David and Bathsheba. I don't know if you know that Gideon eventually will uh, build an ephod, which is uh, an item for worship, and that Israel would start to worship him. I don't know if you know that about his story. I don't know if you know that Barak was really brave as long as Deborah was with him, and when Deborah wasn't with him, he wasn't so brave. Uh, Samson, womanizer, Jephthah, you know, he's, he makes an oath that's just the dumbest oath I've ever heard of. Uh, you know, so, and Samuel, Samuel's sons were a lot like Eli's sons. And so each of these folks, even though they're listed here, there's a glaring problem with their story. We'll come back to that, though. I want to look at Gideon's story because I think the author is making a point here when the author puts Gideon first. And so I want to take a look at what kind of faith is the writer of Hebrews talking about? Because he seems to be one, the author seems to be highlighting Gideon. So in Judges chapter 6, we're going to find that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them over to the hand of Midian for seven years. And what would happen is each year as they would plant, and then when they come to the time of harvest, the Midianites would show up with their, with their, with their camels, and they would just overwhelm the region. 
And the scripture says that it's like locusts coming in. I don't know what it's like to see a sea of locusts coming, but apparently that's a bad thing. <laughs> and, uh, and this is the word picture that the author gives in Judges chapter 6. So starting in verse 7, seven it reads this way. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on the account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land." And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now, these verses set the stage. If this was a drama, we would now know what the problem is. The Israelites, they have not obeyed the Lord. Uh, Calamity has come upon them. God led the the people out of Egypt. They depended on him for their daily sustenance. They worshiped him. They had direct communion with him. But now that they're in the land, culture is having greater influence over the people. And the people of God can't be distinguished from the nations around them. They look the same. And the book of Judges shows this repeated narrative over and over and over again. The people wander from God. God sends a disaster in various forms. Then God sends a judge to redeem the people and set them on right path again. And how many times did this happen in my early walk with Christ? You know, initially come to Christ. I'm excited for him. I start learning what it means to be in relationship with him, get distracted, walk away from, from those things that I was drawn to in the first place. I start living like the rest of the world. I start living like my neighbors, and, and my life looks no different than my neighbors. And then I start feeling the pain the sorrow, the disappointment of of how I've been living that life because I knew better. I knew Christ. I knew better. And then God would send someone, an older Christian, someone who had been in the faith longer, and they would disciple me. But I I repeated this cycle more than once. I don't know if I did it as many times as we see in the book of Judges. I probably maybe did it twice that many times. Who knows? Um... If we're going to be a church about discipleship, we have to understand this cycle. We have to understand that the people we're discipling, this is, this is what happens. This is, this is going to be a temptation. This is going to be a draw. They're going to be tempted to, to go back to the world and start engaging in the world like they used to. Verse 11 continues, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress 
to hide from the Midianites. So harvest has happened. Gideon is in a wine press, and we got a picture of a wine press here. What happens is down here in the lower hand, right hand, there's several of these spots here, but the grapes will go in this indentation here, right? This is for, wine presses are for, for, for grapes, not for wheat. I don't know if you knew that. I learned that this week. Um, they would press on the grapes here, and then it would flow down into this larger pit. He's beating the wheat in the larger pit. It's like this. Gideon, where are you? He's, he's beating the wheat down in the hole. Next slide. That's a threshing floor. That's where Gideon should have been if he wasn't hiding. So they, you know, you could either um, use some tools to, to beat the wheat or you can use livestock and pulling a heavy stone. You could beat the wheat. Um, whatever the case, works way better here than it does down in that wine press. You got the picture? Okay. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Remember, this is Gideon down here, right? O mighty man of valor. <laughs> like, is this a joke? And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has this all happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. I want you to notice that, that the Gideon's argument here isn't even sound theologically. A God abandoned us. Like, there's no confession here. There's no understanding of this from God's perspective. This is a very man-centered perspective. His theology is not great at this point. Verse 14, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and save Israel from the hand of Midian, do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest of Manasseh, and I am the least of my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And so again, the Lord sees something in Gideon that Gideon doesn't see in himself. Otherwise, he's not down in the pit. Otherwise, he's not down in a hole. The next see, Gideon asks for a sign. He brings a goat, unleavened cakes, and broth. And the angel tells him, put the goat and the unleavened bread on a rock and pour the broth over it. The angel touched the offering with the staff and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the offering. And then the angel vanished. But the Lord commanded him that he should tear down the 
altar to, to Baal and, and the Asherah standing next to it. This is his father's altar to Baal. And so Gideon takes 10 servants that night to destroy the altars and set up an altar to the Lord. Ironically, this stirs up his neighbors and not his father. His neighbors want to take his life because they are afraid of the gods of the land. They think the gods of the land have power over them. But his father wasn't willing to take his life. Now, was Gideon being expedient by immediately responding to the Lord that night and taking 10 men to tear down the altar? No. The scriptures are very clear that Gideon was afraid of the people. But he moves. He responds. So we start out finding our man of faith hiding in a wine press. And then he does the bidding of the Lord at night when no one will see him. But we see some movement. Continuing on in verse 36, Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel from my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. Moved again. Started out in the wine press. Destroyed the altar. Set up a new altar. Now he's at the threshing floor where he should have been to begin with. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early in the morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let your anger not burn against me. Let me speak just once more. This is a direct quote from Abraham. When Abraham was talking to the Lord about Sodom and Gomorrah. Interesting. He knows the scriptures. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let this dry, let be dry in the fleece only, and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. Man, Gideon's getting a little braver. We see movement. What kind of person can God use? The kind of person that moves when called to action. The kind of person that moves when called to action. Faith, fear, man, there's a constant tension there. But I've heard Someone who is brave is not someone who, or someone who is courageous, is not someone who lacks fear, but they respond regardless of the fear that they face. 
So faith and fear and courage can be tied together. And if we live by courage, we can face the fear and live out the faith that we're called to. And this is the way faith grows, by the way. You know, I asked you earlier if you feel intimidated by the hall of faith, right? When you read the, the things that these folks did, know that they didn't start there. That's not where they started. That's not where Gideon started. He started in the wine press. But as he responded and he see God move and, and God act, he could respond again. And, as he, and as, he, as he sees God move and act, he could respond again. As he experiences God again, he can move again. So in our next scene is found in Judges chapter 7. Through Gideon, God chooses 300 men out of 32,000 to go up against a median army of 120,000. Does that make sense to anybody in this room? This is why I was in the Air Force. Hand-to-hand combat was not my thing. <laughs> but 4,001 ratio, that's, that's not something that I'm up for. Um, so Gideon has 32,000 men, and the Lord says, I'm going to need to whittle this down a little bit. And so he says, send home anybody who's afraid. Guess who stays? Gideon. Gideon stays. He's no longer afraid. I wonder what happened. But 20,000 men were afraid and they left. Can you feel the Adam's, like, can you imagine that Adam's apple moment right there? <laughs> like seeing 20,000 guys saying, yep, I'm afraid. I think they were the sane ones. They were going up against 120,000 men. <laughs> Everybody else just stayed. They were nuts. And then the 12,000 men, he says, have them drink from the spring. And if you know the story, there were 300 guys that when they got to the water, they got down like this on all fours and apparently they had just seen Jake take a drink. Not my son. Jake the dog. They just seen Jake take a drink, and they're like, that seems like a legit way to grab some water. <laughs> Gideon's got to be watching this, this crew of 300 people and shaking his head like, God, what are you up to? So then God equips his army of 300 that's going to go up against 120,000. He gives them a trumpet, a uh, clay jar that's empty, and a torch. Who wants to sign up for this army? We got one in the back. So Gideon splits up the 300 into three groups of 100. And in chapter 7, it says this, Gideon and the 100 men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. 
when they had just set watch and they blew the trumpet and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And then they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. <clears throat> Every man stood his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. So Gideon, he starts out in a wine press, starts out in a hole, has this conversation with the Lord. Decides to move. Destroys his father's altar to Baal in the Asherah. does it at night, but still he's showing some bravery, showing some movement. He's making some steps. Next, we find Gideon on the threshing floor where he should have started with his fleece. His faith is growing. And finally, we see Gideon going up against 120,000 men with 300 of the goofiest people you ever met. And not a sword within their reach. Doesn't faith start out like a mustard seed and grow from there? Did Gideon make some mistakes along the way? Yeah. When you start out, does Gideon look like a man of valor? like a man of faith, like a man that you should list a thousand years later in a book proclaiming how faithful of a people we should be. Through all this, Gideon got to experience God. And the people of Israel benefited. And I believe that as we continue to move forward in faith as a church, we will experience God and the people of Missoula will benefit. Gideon said, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And the Lord turned to him. I picture someone on their cell phone, right? They're talking to the Lord, and the Lord's, you know, paying attention to the football scores. And Gideon says, will you pay attention to what's going on? And it says the Lord turned to him. What an amazing phrase about our God. And he said, do I not send you? But he also said, I will be with you. And I think of Matthew 28, when Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I've commanded. And lo, I'm with you always. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. 
So even as the Lord told Gideon, I want you to go, I am with you. Jesus says the same thing to you and me, go, I am with you. Go, I am with you. So the implication is this. It doesn't matter how insignificant, ill-equipped, broken, or unqualified you think you are. God calls you to action. If we're going to be a church that is known for authenticity, sacrificial generosity, unity and diversity, being a family, we need to be a people that won't allow imperfections to prevent us from moving forward with God's mission. We have to help each other grow up. We have to help each other mature. But we can't let those things stop us from moving forward. The hall of faith is full of people who thought they were insignificant, ill-equipped, broken, or unqualified. The Bible's full of people with broken stories that get redeemed and renewed because they faithfully move forward with God. God calls us to action. Are we going to respond? And our application comes out of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So application one, look intently at Jesus. You have a big God. When the author of Hebrews says, says in verse 2, looking to Jesus, it means looking away. That, that Greek word means looking away from something that has your attention, looking towards something with intent. Looking to Jesus. Gideon had to stop looking at his fears and had to look at his God and believe that God was going to do something. We have to look away from our fears. And then verse 3, when it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. That Greek verb really means to analyze. Like analyze Jesus. Analyze the life that he lived. Analyze... <clears throat> what he calls us to. So let's look away from what we've been staring at to intently look at Jesus and analyze him. We have a big God. Number two, strip off every encumbrance, whatever sin binds you, whatever you hide behind, however you seek self-protection. I talked about this this group of people of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David 
and Samuel. And I really believe that these first three verses of chapter 12 is in response to this group of six men who didn't finish well. Who saw things in their lives that were contrary to the word of God, but they just turned a blind eye to those things. Because of anybody in this list of the hall of faith of chapter 11, these six men have the most glaring problems. An author says to strip off every encumbrance. If it's sin, deal with it. If it's fear, face it. And in whatever way you want to protect yourself, trust that God has a better plan for protecting you. Strip off every encumbrance. How do we move when God calls us to action? Number three, embrace the community that cheers you on. I've, I've always read this verse in chapter 12 is meaning the people that have long since died. Like as Abraham watches you, this cloud of witnesses. But, it, but if you go to a track track of meat, everybody's watching. Your teammates are watching. As we build relational discipleship community, as we engage in each other's lives, as we are called to cheer each other on. We're to spur each other on to faith and good works. But we also have to embrace that community that cheers us on. And finally, Receive grace and extend grace. How are we going to, if we're going to be roughly right, if we're going to be a church that doesn't let our mistakes define us, we're going to let Jesus define us. But we're going to learn from our mistakes and we're going to move on. We're going to have to receive grace. And we're going to have to remember that I need grace and you need grace, that we're going to have to extend it. We're going to have to get really good at receiving grace and we have to get really good at extending grace. And I don't know about you, but I have a hard time receiving grace. It's a struggle. But the truth is, ultimately, if I don't ever get to the point where I can receive grace, like when I just let that struggle continue, it makes it harder for me to extend grace. At some point, it turns, and somehow it becomes a problem with me extending grace. So we're going to have to be good at receiving and extending grace. We are moving towards our time communion. In a moment, I'm going to invite you up and ask you to come grab the elements. But as you do that, I want you to be thinking about Gideon. And how is your life similar to Gideon? Have you seen your faith grow as, as you have moved? 
as you've engaged with God, as you have responded to whatever he has said for you to do? Have you seen your faith grow? Or do you still find yourself in some way, shape, or form still hiding in the wine press, still waiting, still wondering if you can respond, still wondering if God really is going to redeem you, restore you, bring hope. So whatever the case, as you come up and grab the elements, be thinking about how is your story related to Gideon? Come on up. I've been to the brook that they drank from, Gideon and his army. It's a beautiful spot. You don't feel like you're in Israel. I didn't feel like I was in Israel when I was there. Uh, much more like Spokane, just very green, very pretty. Much of Israel is brown. <laughs> Lots of rocks. I have thought about our church, and I don't think so much in terms of Gideon's army. I think of in terms of uh, David's mighty men. Because I don't think you guys are goofy at all. But we are small. We're a small band. And I thought about God. God, what can you do with a little church? in Missoula, where so many people don't know you. I don't know what you can do, but it's way bigger than my imagination. And I want to be a part of it. I want to see him move in this town, and I want to be used by him. And the night when Jesus was betrayed, must have been such a hard night for the disciples thinking is everything coming to an end? I had some moments like that this year with our church going man are we going to be able to survive this? But we have a God of resurrection God of power God of life I'm excited to do this with you guys. In the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, this is new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as, do this in remembrance of me. Father, I want to thank you for being the kind of God that sees us, that when, when our theology is imperfect, when fear drives the conversation, when we make mistakes, when we just get it wrong, you still love us. You still pursue us. You still use us. You have every intention to restore us. Lord, I pray that we be a community of people that would love each other well, that would extend and receive grace well. Lord, that we could live out your gospel together. 
Lord, it's my hope to see you at work in this community to do miracles where people would know that you are a great and awesome God. We use this little church to your glory. We love you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share if you enjoyed this message. Mission Ridge is a new church in Missoula, Montana. If you're in the Missoula area, we would love to have you join us for worship on a Sunday. For more information about Mission Ridge, connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or online at missionridge.church. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can give securely online at missionridge.church forward slash give. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you have a blessed week. We'll catch you on the flip side.